story goes that the D.C. area sniper shootings began October 2, 2002, outside a grocery store in Wheaton, Maryland. But the snipers attacked victims in the D.C. area prior to that date. The first Maryland victim targeted by John Allen Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malvo through the sights of their stolen Bushmaster rifle and from the inside of their vehicle, was actually gunned down the night of September 14, 2002 in Silver Spring. Investigators would piece everything together weeks later, but the owners of a beer and wine store where that September 14 shooting took place suspected all along that those responsible for all the sniper shootings across Maryland, D.C., and Virginia were the same killers who shot their employee outside their business. Arnie Zekelvitz, who owned that beer and wine store 20 years ago, still remembers watching the news of the October 2nd fatal shooting outside the Shopper's Food Warehouse and his and his wife's reaction. We had heard about a shooting at the Shopper's Food Warehouse, that nobody saw anything that happened Nobody saw a gun, nobody saw anything. And I got home, I didn't even go upstairs to, to the bedroom, my wife was upstairs. And I just turned the TV on downstairs, I was watching the news. And the spokesperson for Montgomery County Police came on and said, we don't know of any similar shootings in the area. At which point I heard my, my wife like jump off of the bed, come running down the stairs. And I remember she stood there and said, can you believe that? It's exactly like what happened. And it was, it was just too similar. On the night of September 14, 2002, Arnie and his new employee, Benny Oberoi, were locking up the business for the night. Benny was waiting for me at the curb with his back to the parking lot. As I got right up next to him, there was a shot. For some reason, I thought it was a motorcycle backfiring. So Benny went down. He was on his stomach. One leg was off of the curb. And I can't remember whether I lifted up his shirt or if his shirt was lifted up. And there was a very small bullet hole in his back. Very, very little blood. But he kept saying, I hurt, I hurt, I hurt. I realized, of course, it was it was a gunshot. And I just started yelling, call 911, call 911. Benny survived his injuries. Arnie and his wife would come to realize later that the D.C. snipers had actually been inside their store prior to the shooting. And the interaction one of them had with Arnie's wife wasn't all that friendly. It was also learned later that the snipers had been shooting victims across the United States for seven months before they focused and intensified their killing spree around the nation's capital. Presented by Law and Crime, this is Chasing Ghosts, the hunt for the DC Snipers. At the end of episode six, I described to you the February 16th, 2002 shooting death of Kenya Cook in Tacoma, Washington. That was the first shooting that Muhammad and Malvo carried out together. Not long after that shooting, the 41-year-old Muhammad and his young accomplice boarded a Greyhound bus headed for Arizona to visit Muhammad's older sister. Upon their arrival in Tucson, 
the unsuspecting sister picked up the pair at the bus station. It was while they were in Tucson that Muhammad and Malvo carried out another fatal shooting. During the afternoon of March 19th, Jerry Taylor, a 60-year-old salesman, was playing golf at the Fred Inc. golf course. He was fatally shot in the back. Police were called after two golfers found Taylor's body in the brush. His body had been dragged there. Witnesses said they saw a man walk out of the woods carrying a bag of some kind. Detectives had no leads in that case for the next seven months. Six days after the Tucson shooting, Muhammad and Malvo boarded another Greyhound bus and left the area. Their bus driver was Jill Farrell. I only had five people on the bus that day when I met those two. And the middle-aged adult man, just abrupt, not rude, but the youngster was very, very polite with manners. That's what I remember about those two. One peculiar thing Farrell noticed was that the two men were carrying with them a long box. She suggested putting it in the baggage area below the seats, but Muhammad was insistent that the box stay with him. There was something else that Farrell found to be strange about the pair. They boarded the bus that took a more local route, one with considerably more stops. Farrell asked Muhammad whether he'd prefer to take an express bus, one that stuck mostly to the state's highways. And that's when he said, no, this is fine and boarded the bus. When the bus finally arrived in Flagstaff, and after Muhammad and Malvo had gotten off, Farrell realized the bag containing her credit cards was stolen. She canceled two of her cards and forgot about the third one. But the thieves seemingly didn't go far with it, only using it for a $12 purchase at a gas station in Tacoma. The account associated with that stolen visa is what the snipers used seven months later when they tried to extort the government in the note they'd left behind at the scene of the Ashland, Virginia shooting on October 19th, which I discussed in episode five. The snipers demanded that $10 million be wired to that account. The money was never sent. Following that bus ride in March, the duo traveled to Washington State again and would bounce back and forth from Bellingham to Tacoma during April and May of 2002. One day in May, a rabbi at a synagogue in Tacoma found a hole in the back of the building where the Torah scrolls were kept. He assumed it was the work of mice, but a few days later the rabbi found another hole. He took a closer look and realized the holes probably were not caused by mice. He called police who found more damage to the property and determined it was all done with bullets fired from a gun. By July, Muhammad and Malvo boarded a bus headed south again toward Baton Rouge, the city where Muhammad grew up. They made some stops along the way, including in El Paso. Muhammad and Malvo attended a gun show there and stole a revolver. On August 1st, 50-year-old John Gaeta was shot in the neck outside a mall in Hammond, Louisiana, located about 45 miles east of Baton Rouge. Two males approached him as he was changing one of his tires, which had been slashed. As Gaeta saw the two males coming closer, the smaller of the two lifted his shirt, pulled a gun, and pointed it toward him. After he was shot, Gaeta lay still on the ground. The assailants, now thought to have been Muhammad and Malvo, fled the area. Gaeta survived. Later that month, 
The pair boarded another bus and headed back to Tacoma. When they got there, they stayed with Robert Holmes, one of Muhammad's old army buddies. Holmes was a Youngstown, Ohio native. He wanted to return home after his stint in the army, but the job market in his hometown had dried up. He stayed close to Fort Lewis and wound up in Tacoma, where he ran an auto repair business. Muhammad was an auto mechanic by trade, too, and when his business collapsed, he gave his client list to Holmes, who was grateful to him. He may have even felt that he owed Muhammad. He also had sympathy for Muhammad, who told Holmes the same story he told various other people. He lost his kids following a bitter divorce. Holmes could see that losing his kids hurt Muhammad, but after a while, Holmes started having mixed feelings about his friend. He figured Malva wasn't his actual son, in spite of what Muhammad told him. But Holmes could see how much the two loved being together. Holmes thought they'd be worse off without each other, so he didn't speak up. Holmes's suspicions worsened one day when Muhammad showed him a metal tube he'd found. Holmes didn't know where Muhammad got it from and he didn't ask. Muhammad told Holmes that he wanted to try to convert it into some type of rifle silencer. Muhammad noticed that Holmes had a tree stump in his backyard. He decided to test the silencer while Holmes and Malva were inside. The first shot was quiet. The second shot, not so quiet. The third shot sounded like a regular rifle shot. Dejected, Muhammad and Malva left the house and left the makeshift silencer behind. Holmes was not upset to see them leave. Muhammad and Malvo headed east, a long way east. It was the night of September 5th when Malvo shot and injured Paul LaRufa outside his restaurant in Clinton, Maryland. He stole the victim's laptop and $3,500 in cash. With all that cash in hand, Muhammad had what he needed to stop relying on public transit. But he and Malvo would take one more bus ride. A day or two after the LaRufa shooting, Muhammad reached out to an acquaintance. He called him from the bus terminal in Camden, New Jersey. Muhammad said he and his son were passing through town and needed help buying a car. The friend drove Muhammad and Malvo around and they wound up at a used auto lot in Trenton, where Muhammad laid eyes on a blue 1990 Chevrolet Caprice. The sedan had once been an unmarked police cruiser. Muhammad liked it because he thought that if the car was parked in a crowded lot, no one was likely to notice it. Muhammad bought the blue Caprice for $250. Before he bought it, Muhammad lowered the rear seats and lay down inside the car to see whether he could fit inside the trunk. It was a tight fit, but he could squeeze in there, so he knew for certain that Malva would fit. The car was more conspicuous than Muhammad probably realized. It had rear-end damage and jersey plates. Muhammad and Malvo headed south and wound up in Silver Spring, Maryland. They stopped in the Hillendale section. That's where they came upon Arnie Zelkovitz's beer and wine store. Benny was shot on a Saturday night, around 10 p.m., but that wasn't the first time Muhammad and Malvo had been to the store. Earlier that day, or perhaps the day before, they walked in while Arnie's wife was working. I particularly remember the day because I, I was playing golf. She would open up one day a week for me to go play golf. And I came in after golf and my wife was just really stressed by it. It was really stressed. And what had happened was the two of them had come into the store. She described them as an older guy and a young guy. She thought it would probably be father and son. 
At one point, Muhammad was rummaging through one of the coolers when something behind the counter caught his eye. I was always into politics, so I would always have cartoons. People were bringing like political cartoons, and we would put them, hang them behind the counter. And after 9/11, everybody started bringing in cartoons about Osama bin Laden, like Osama bin Laden on a magic carpet being chased by F-15 fighters, that kind of stuff. Muhammad told Arnie's wife what he thought of that cartoon. And then, as he was walking out, we're Jewish. My wife was wearing. A, a Jewish star. And he said something to her about, I'll bet you Jewish too. And then they left. It was an unnerving encounter for Arnie's wife, but the worst was yet to come. Hours later, their employee, Benny, would be shot. Montgomery County 911, what's your emergency? Uh, yeah, some guy's been shot. Where? We're in Montgomery County. What's the name of Hillendale Shopping Center? He's laying face down in front of the, the beer and wine store. Dude, can you see where he's shot? 109. Yeah, I'm looking right at the guy. Okay, where is he shot on his body? Because the fire department's going to need to know. His stomach and out his back, or in his back and through his stomach. Okay, is he still alive? He's the guy talking. Okay. He works at the liquor store here. The bullet that struck the victim sliced through his diaphragm and colon, but those injuries, while serious, did not threaten his life. Arnie did not make any connection between the shooting and his wife's uncomfortable encounter with that stranger in their store until much later. The following night, on September 15th, around 10 p.m., Muhammad Rashid was closing up Three Road Liquor, a drive through liquor store in Prince George's County that included a bar and pool room. The store was in Brandywine along Route 5, four miles from where LaRufa was shot 10 days earlier, and about 30 miles from where Benny was shot 24 hours earlier. Rashid had sent his employee home, so it was just him at the store. He looked out the window and saw a parked blue car with its hood open. He walked outside to lock up, and then he heard two loud booms. Two holes appeared in the door, one in the glass in front of him, and another in the frame above his head. He turned and saw someone coming toward him with a gun. There was a bang, and he felt a sharp pain in his stomach and fell to the ground. The shooter rolled him over and patted him down. Rashid called 911 after he heard the shooter run away. Okay, where are you shot? In my, in my belly stomach. Uh, one piece, I want to open body, one door. Oh my, I'm gonna help you, I'm gonna help you. Rashid was airlifted to a hospital and survived. By this time, Muhammad and Malva were mostly roaming across Maryland, D.C. and Virginia in that blue caprice, but they decided to take one more trip south. On the morning of September 19th, four days after Rashid was shot, the pair was seen sleeping inside their car in the parking lot of a Ramada Inn in Petersburg, Virginia, a city 25 miles south of Richmond. Petersburg is where motorists traveling on Interstate 95 can exit on Interstate 85 and head in a southwesterly direction toward Atlanta. That was going to be the sniper's next destination, and that's where they'd target another liquor store employee. Around 12.15 a.m. on September 21st, Million Walder Merriam was shot outside the front entrance of the store. He would die 11 hours later at a local hospital. Walder Merriam was shot three times with a 22 caliber handgun, twice in the upper back and once in the back of the head. 
That same night, Muhammad and Malvo drove to Montgomery, Alabama, and shot two women outside a liquor store near the Alabama State campus. Both were shot with a rifle. Claudine Parker died from her injuries, while Kelly Randall, who you heard from in Episode 5, survived after being shot in the face. The revolver that was stolen a couple months earlier in El Paso was dropped by Malvo near the scene of that shooting. Malvo also dropped a gun catalog near the scene of the shooting, and that catalog was later sent to the FBI lab for fingerprint analysis. Muhammad and Malvo traveled the next day to Baton Rouge. On the night of September 23rd, they shot Hong Ballinger, owner of a beauty shop. The 45-year-old wife of an Army veteran was shot in the head while closing her business for the day. Ballinger was Muhammad's and Malvo's 10th victim by this point. Five of those victims were killed. Six days after the Ballinger shooting, the Blue Caprice would be seen in Gulfport, Mississippi. Ninety-six hours after that suspicious-looking Caprice was seen parked outside a dive bar in Gulfport, the shooting spree, commonly referred to as the D.C. area sniper shootings, began with a bullet entering a suburban Maryland Michaels store, followed an hour later by another shot that entered the back of James Martin outside the Shopper's Food Warehouse in Wheaton. Muhammad and Malvo rode around in that Caprice for seven weeks, traveling more than 2,600 miles. They spent most of that time confined to an area between Baltimore and Richmond, and yet the Sniper Task Force was not wise to the fact that people needed to be on the lookout for a blue Caprice with tented windows and New Jersey tags. By October 21st, 18 days after the first news report that a white vehicle was observed peeling away from the scene of the shooting, the Sniper Task Force was still telling the media, who were telling the public, to keep an eye out for a white van. First it was a white box truck, then it became a white van. Some sightings claimed it was a cream-colored van, and it may or may not have had ladder racks on it. Police responded to one sighting of a white van or truck after another. County Police, 1624, lines recorded. Five minutes after the shooting, white Astro passed me westbound 108 with a ladder rack, but no actual ladder on it. I'm just calling to report a white van sitting in the parking lot here. It's in the Coles parking lot, and there's two men sitting in the van. What kind of van is it? It's the, it's the Ford one. There were some, not many, but some, who were clamoring for police and the media to ease up on their emphasis on the white van. On October 12th, a week and a half into the D.C. area sniper slayings, a meeting of the minds was called. It was attended by several local police chiefs, including Charles Ramsey, the then police chief in Washington, D.C. As he listened to one PowerPoint presentation after another, Ramsey started to think it was all a pointless exercise. He spoke up about his displeasure with the way the investigation was going. Specifically, Chief Ramsey brought up an eyewitness account from the October 3rd shooting in the district, the one that killed Pascal Charlot at the intersection of Georgia Avenue and Calmia Road. A witness there saw what she thought was a burgundy caprice with tenant windows. The car at the scene was actually blue, but there wasn't much lighting in the area, so the witness thought the car might have been red. 
That vehicle description was included in a Be On The Lookout bulletin sent by a Metro Police detective. At least one media member was aware of that Caprice sighting. It was Greg Geis, a cameraman for WUSA Channel 9. He and a reporter were on their way to the station in Northwest DC when they heard several interesting radio calls from responding Metro Police officers. Those officers described a car they were passing on the road while en route to the scene of the shooting. It was a routine exercise by patrol units in that department. The cops would do that so that they would have a record of information as they responded. And three times, different officers reported that same vehicle. I found that to be more than coincidental. And what was the description of that vehicle? It was broadcast with a slight variation of a dark, older model Ford Crown Vic or Chevy Caprice, dark in color, operating without lights. And, and one broadcast, I think, was heading north on Georgia Avenue. Another one was on one of the side streets as the officers responded to the shooting location. So a few descriptions of a Caprice went out on the air that night. That detail was never a point of emphasis for the task force. Some on the task force didn't even know about it, even though it was written on a teletype from that night. In the end, Muhammad and Malvo were linked to 26 shootings from Washington State to Washington, D.C., and those shootings resulted in 16 deaths, 9 woundings, and 2 shootings into dwellings. The last of those shootings occurred the morning of October 22nd in Montgomery County, Maryland. Conrad Johnson was a 35-year-old bus driver with a wife and two children. The blue and white bus that he drove was part of Montgomery County's ride-on transit system. It was still dark outside, but the lights in the area illuminated the entire staging area near Connecticut Avenue. Five of the D.C. sniper victims were shot within four miles of that location. Johnson, known by his friends and family as C.J., drove a route from Aspen Hill to Bethesda. He had a female trainee on board the bus that morning. She was sitting in the front seat on the right side of the bus. The open door was facing a basketball court in some woods. Johnson and the trainee had just finished eating breakfast. Johnson, who was standing on one of the steps near the open door, had just placed a coffee cup on top of the change box. It was 5.55 a.m. when the sound of a boom came from the direction of the woods. Johnson was struck in the right side of his upper abdomen. The round destroyed his liver and damaged his pancreas and right renal artery. The panicked trainee who heard the shot and watched Johnson fall down in front of her called 911. Medics arrived and saw Johnson lying on his back, still conscious. They carried him off the bus, put him in an ambulance, and drove him to a fire station where he was airlifted to Suburban Hospital in Bethesda. Milton Perry was a close friend of Johnson's. He told the media years later how scared and devastated he was when he learned that his friend was shot by the D.C. snipers. I received a call that morning that he had been shot, and I dispatched a couple of people to run up there and find out what was going on. And after then, it was one of the worst days of my life. Johnson was still awake and alert when he arrived at the hospital but his liver was so badly damaged that there was little the surgeons could do for him. 
His blood pressure dropped and his body shut down. He was pronounced dead three and a half hours after he was shot. His family was seated in the waiting room, and they were devastated when surgeons told them that their beloved CJ was gone. The news of the shooting shocked residents of Montgomery County, which hadn't had a shooting since October 3rd. The snipers last struck a victim 100 miles south in a suburb of Richmond, Virginia, and people were hopeful they'd be caught before circling back to Maryland. Later that day, police searched the woods and discovered a small plastic bag. Inside was a handwritten note, just like at the crime scenes in Bowie and Ashland. The media found out about it. The situation was getting dicey. Charles Moose, the head of the sniper task force, was losing his grip on the situation because the media were pressing him about school closures. Schools in Richmond were closed that day in the wake of the Ashland shooting from the previous weekend, but Montgomery County schools remained open. The media wanted to know the reason for that, but Moose could give no good answer. The chief also refused to confirm whether the note left at the latest shooting included any mention of children being in danger. By this time, the tide of public support was receding from not only Chief Moose, but from the entire task force. At least it started to feel that way. At 5 p.m. on October 22nd, Charles Moose finally confirmed everything that was in the note. During a media conference, he read the postscript of the note found in the woods near the bus staging area. He read, quote, Your children are not safe anywhere at any time. End quote. The beleaguered police chief took no questions. He would tell an aide later that he had just given the hardest press conference of his life. It was the police's job to keep people safe, and him saying those words out loud indicated that they weren't doing their jobs. But behind the scenes, headway was being made in the investigation. In Tacoma, Washington, authorities finally interviewed Robert Holmes, who had called the tip line a week earlier. Holmes talked about Muhammad and his relationship with Malvo, who Muhammad affectionately referred to as Sniper. He talked about Muhammad's attempts to construct a silencer for his rifle. FBI agents were playing Holmes a tape of Malvo's voice. It was the recording of a call he made to the Rockville police on October 16th. While he was seated with FBI agents, Holmes blurted out that there was at least one rifle round still stuck in a tree stump in his backyard. That really got the FBI's attention. But before that huge development, there was something else, something that injected law enforcement with a much-needed dose of optimism. That morning, while things were still at a frantic pace following the Conrad Johnson shooting, a fingerprint expert with the FBI examined the prints left on the gun catalog that was found at the shooting scene at the liquor store in Montgomery, Alabama, where Claudine Parker was killed and Kelly Randall seriously injured. The prints were matched to Lee Boyd Malvo, someone nobody at the task force had heard of. Malvo's prints landed in the FBI's federal database after the Jamaican-born teen was picked up in Bellingham, Washington on December 19, 2001. 
There were documents that stated that Malvo was apprehended during some sort of custody dispute between his mother and a man by the name of John Muhammad. So the task force obtained two names, John Allen Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malvo, and they got two headshots to go with the names. But the photo for Muhammad wasn't the best quality. It wasn't even marginal quality. It was taken while he was detained by immigration officials in Miami in 2001. Billy Sarukas, a senior inspector with the U.S. Marshals Service, who you first heard from in Episode 5, was in his office in Northern Virginia working the Malvo lead when he made the connection between Malvo and a man who went by the names John Williams and John Allen Muhammad. Sarukas was assigned at the time to his agency's electronic surveillance unit, so he had fast access to a lot of information. Whenever he made a relevant discovery, he'd send it to the task force in Rockville. As he gathered information about Malvo and Muhammad, his confidence was building that he was onto something. It was kind of full speed ahead at this point. I think most investigators that have worked fugitive investigations like this understand when you get a couple of pieces that are all making sense, you get that feeling that you've got the answer to what you've been looking for. During his investigation, Sarukas learned that Muhammad had obtained a driver's license in California. So Sarukas had another photo of Muhammad. It was a little better quality, but it still needed some enhancements. He called a colleague of his in San Diego to help with that. I told him I needed this right away. Once he got it, you know, a short time later, he asked what was so important about it. And I said, you know, take a good look. I think you're looking at one of the guys that's doing the shootings here in Washington, D.C. While that clue was being gathered across the country, Sarukas kept digging and came upon a credit report for Muhammad. One piece of information in the report that really piqued Sarukas's interest was that Muhammad had gone through a bitter divorce and custody battle with his ex-wife, Mildred Muhammad, who happened to live near Washington, D.C. Sarukas learned that John Muhammad had actually kidnapped the couple's children and took them out of the country. It was a eureka moment, and a surveillance team was sent to Clinton to keep an eye on Mildred. Eventually, as it became clearer to more people that Muhammad was likely one of the D.C. snipers, agents stopped watching Mildred's house in Clinton and knocked on her door. Agents from the FBI and ATF asked Mildred to come with them to an interview room in Washington. They asked her a litany of questions about her estranged husband. They asked her to listen to a recording of Malvo's voice. They did not tell her who was on the recording, and Mildred, who had never met Malvo, did not recognize the voice. Then one of the agents dropped a verbal bomb on her. It was an agent that was walking back and forth in the interrogation room. He was on a cell phone. He finally stopped. He said, look, Miss Muhammad, we just want to tell you. We're going to name your ex-husband as the sniper. My head hit the table. Even Mildred's worst fears about her ex-husband never rose to this level. The agents asked the now-shaken Mildred Muhammad a question they figured was a no-brainer, but they still had to ask. Mildred gave them an emphatic answer. They said, well, Ms. Muhammad, would you like to go into protective custody? I said, you got to ask me that? They said, well, yes, because some people don't want to go. I said, okay. Have you caught him yet? No, ma'am. Do you know where he is? No, ma'am. And you still have to ask me? Yes, ma'am. Yes, I want to go into protective custody.
after several more big pieces of the puzzle were settling into place. And hours after the sun went down the night of October 23rd, the day after Conrad Johnson was killed, John Allen Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malveaux, possibly aware that police were now hot on their tail, found what they thought was a reclusive enough spot, away from the fray of Montgomery County. On Interstate 70, past Frederick and more than 50 miles northwest of Washington, D.C., there's a rest stop. It was a place, and still is a place, where truckers often stopped for an overnight rest. It's located on the east slope of South Mountain. Malvo and Muhammad, thinking they had picked as good a spot as any to hide and contemplate their next move, backed the caprice into a dark parking space. Muhammad went to sleep in the back seat, and Malvo drifted off while sitting in the front seat. Whitney Donahue, a supermarket refrigerator technician from Pennsylvania, was heading for that rest stop to take a much-needed break during his long commute from Manassas, Virginia. Donahue was listening to The Charlie Warren Show on WMAL Radio when he heard a breaking news bulletin about the DC snipers. While still driving on I-70, he grabbed a pen and jotted down on the back of his timesheet the car and tag information that was being recited on the radio broadcast. He perked up when he heard that they might be driving a Chevrolet Caprice because he owned one. Donahue knew exactly what to look for, and he'd be the one witness who'd put an end to the carnage once and for all. Coming up on Chasing Ghosts, the hunt for the DC snipers. The 1990 blue Caprice that, the, that you all are looking for uh-huh. is sitting at the rest area, Route 70. So where were they? The third parking spot. Right here. Right there. Yep. The general consensus was that we were going to be in a hell of a firefight with them. Chasing Ghosts is presented by Law and Crime. Music and production by Corey Hiltman. All 911 and dispatch calls were provided by the National Law Enforcement Museum in Washington, D.C. You may follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Holt Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. Chasing Ghosts is available on Law and Crime's website, as well as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get podcasts.